It's the D'Souza Palooza. Welcome to Movie Marathon. I'm Mike, the delightful gentleman <laughs> screaming D'Souza Palooza in your ears. It's Andrew. Uh, uh, we're continuing our <laughs> march, uh, or maybe not a march, maybe a lovely <laughs> stroll <laughs> through a series of films all written by Stephen E. D'Souza. Today, uh, we get to the long-hailed masterpiece of his career, um, unrivaled in cinema history, probably the Citizen Kane of the 90s, I think most people describe it as. Um, of course, I'm talking <laughs> about Hudson Hawk. <laughs> The uh, I, before we recorded the movie, Andrew described as almost uh, derailing Bruce Willis's career. <laughs> uh, I don't think he ever fight me on that one either. That's no. the sad part. Uh, and this is going to be a weird one to talk about because uh, it either needs like six hours of deep diving every individual scene, or you just throw up your hands and say, "Man, what a shit show!" So I, I, I guess that gives my opinion on the movie a bit. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think. What I, what's worth doing here, so many people have kind of beat this thing to death. I remember probably 10 years ago, I think, How Did This Get Made did a podcast about Hudson Hawk, which is a lot of fun. Um, a lot of other podcasts have covered it. What to me is more interesting is, yeah, we can sit here and beat it to death for all the crazy stuff, which we're going to do. We're going to make fun of the shit out of this movie because it's pretty bad. But I, I do think like what's more interesting to me is just the whole backstory of how did this like how did i don't want to say how did this get made because that's not somebody else's show <laughs> um but how did how did this this movie come to be because if you look at the the list of people attached to it there's a lot of talent around it uh it comes out at a time where you know bruce willis's career is sort of meteoric and and really on the upswing but it's just it none of it none of it works none of it comes together and it's sort of been heralded as this huge flop financially and 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 you know from the talent side as well but i think that's what i wanted to talk through today was more about how did how did it come to be and then why did it go off the rails and, and you know tying it back to our, our run of d'souza movies what's interesting is so he did the screenplay for it and then from from articles that i i'd read from from about mid-1991 it sounds like he was sort of brought back in and granted i'm, I'm hearing this from an interview they had with him so it's probably going to have some some uh, subjectivity to it but uh it, it sounds like he uh he was sort of brought back in to rescue the project from bruce willis and <laughs> kind of did the best he could uh given given what it was so yeah that, i do find it fascinating most of my research was d'souza talking about it yeah and a lot of his interviews are either come across as um and i'm inclined to believe this but that uh, this the studio that Bruce Willis just take this and go nuts with it, and then they got really scared and brought D'Souza back in to try to salvage it. But that's also pretty self serving. Of you know, if it was not great to begin with, it's really easy as the writer just be like, oh, like my really good screenplay, they totally fucked it up, and I tried my best to save it, but it was too late. <laughs> that's what that's what I was I actually went into it with that mindset of of trying to understand. Um, since we're doing this this run of where it's hard to see where the decisions are spiral because there's so much coming at you there's so much crazy shit coming at you in this movie um it's hard to see where 
the script spirals off versus where they made choices on set versus at what points is is D'Souza coming back in, kind of reining it back. It's hard to tell. It's I I, I struggle with that. Um, and it, you know, from a lot of the research I did, it sounds like Willis was uh, using a lot of his clout and 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 kind of box office success leading up to this point um, to throw some weight around and kind of push the director around, and then also actually uh, had some creative control over the sort of daily shooting script. And so I think that it's it's tough to see where somebody was actually like like i if if this is a reined back version jesus like what did the what did the original like as they were doing it look like like it must have been bananas like i just don't get it yeah and i part of me and i might go into this in a segment a little later so i don't want to get step on it too much but um i'd be curious to have seen that vision (laughs) all the way through like all the way through because it's almost would that have been a better choice like it may have been more consistent. I bet that's probably where you we would have seen it is like, because man, they swing they swing for the fences on everything in this movie, and that's where I'm just like, yeah. So where Willis is at in his career, or Joel Silver's at as a producer, I mean, they're flying pretty high, and so I appreciate that they're not they're not just retreading Die Hard with Bruce Willis again. Yeah, they're taking a swing at. A little something a little more comedic with different elements. Um, they're they're taking a chance on like a big concept, uh, and so I, I hate criticizing too much because one of my complaints about like current Hollywood is you never see something like they, this. They, from they take the, no swings whatsoever yeah, from like, the studio system, and so like anything bad coming out of studios today, it's kind of just boring. Yeah. That we don't, and it's anything interesting bad is typically going to be from um, outside the primary studio system. That they're just not taking big ass swings like this, where oh, <laughs> Bruce right. Willis plays a seeking cat burglar. Like, yeah, so let's talk. I mean, I will, I, I, I do think, like, obviously, if you're listening to this, one, you're probably already our friend, so you probably know, you've probably seen this too, but two, um, <laughs> uh, you've probably seen the movie, but I think it's good just to recap, like. Like so, the movie itself is a premise about a guy named. I think his name is. His last name is Hawk. I can't remember, actually cannot remember what his first name is. It's right because he's Hudson because he was buried by like the Hudson River. Like the Hudson River, which or something is something that tattoo he has on his shoulder. Uh, his first name is Eddie. Eddie, that's right, Eddie. Excuse me, <laughs> I should have known that. Um, so Hawk uh, gets out of jail, and in his first day out of jail, he's set up to have this this corrupt parole officer. And then it seems like as soon as he gets out of jail, his his uh, old um, uh, partner, literal literal partner in crime, picks him up. They go back to the bar they used to own together. It's now this yuppie, yuppie space. And so Hawk is trying to come to terms with what apparently was a ten year jail term. I think he was in jail for like ten years in in um, like Rikers or something like yeah, that. Yeah, ten years. And uh, uh, but somehow, despite having been in jail for ten years and being kind of a kind of a dumb thief, is kind of how they, they sort of initially set him up um he is sophisticated he likes cappuccinos he knows about playing nintendo and uh very quickly gets brought back into the crime world by by everybody's favorite stallone brother frank stallone so um, all right then this is the problem with this movie <laughs> I, I hate interrupting you um because really listening to the podcast you know you notice some things i'm like oh man that one i interrupted too much or that one not enough or like shut the, shut the um, fuck up. 
But you've already hit on so many things. I'm like, yeah, that's crazy <laughs> in this movie. Because you hit like his bar has turned into this like yuppie bar. But it's 1991, and he's super into cappuccino, which feels like a very yuppie 19, choice yuppie for a character. Yeah. And so that pre-Starbucks weird. And then you're saying he's been in jail for ten years. So theoretically, if this is 1991, 1981, he goes to jail. But he knows about Nintendo, which which, which came out in what, like 1984? <laughs> like I, the time, I forget the exact timeline, but it's really I think 85, maybe where it starts taking off in the U.S. But it, anyway, he's been in jail many years before Nintendo is even a thing. Um, and at this point, like we're creeping up on the Super Nintendo um, at 91, <laughs> but so obviously that's uh, game, but it's game wire. <laughs> It's I'm I'm happy for him. He's up to date on his cultural references, but um, well, let me ask you a question. So, if we're talking thieves, uh, we're talking about 1981. Who do you think's the better thief, Bruce Willis in 1981 or James Con from Thief? You know, I, I I have to think. I mean, there's a lot of movie podcasts out there, so it's unlikely we're the first. But there can't be many that uh, are comparing <laughs> Michael Mann's Thief to the Bruce Willis Hudson Hawk. I uh, uh, oh, don't worry. Later on, we're going to compare. Um, so we're going to compare Hudson Hawk to uh, Dan Brown's body of work. So well, that that to. feels a little more a little more in the same uh, in the same wheelhouse. That's probably true. Quality. Yeah. That's probably uh, true. But so James Caan and Thief, it's a little bit how they present. Willis, like the movie goes back and forth on Willis is the world's greatest cat burglar. Like that's literally the logline of the movie. Yeah. Um, and goes to jail. And like, so James Conn and Thief is like a very he, he, skilled he is. and he like, yeah. And what gets him in trouble is like he violates his own rules of like getting attachments and things. Uh, but so like Hawk is kind of presented as that, but then. Everything he does does not back that yeah. up. That's the problem. Is is it, everything you're told about how good he is is exposition from somebody else. But when they show it to you, it's like ne it's never there. And I think that's what's frustrating is they emphasize it's weird. Like they emphasize the humor so much that you actually lose any fidelity it, around why the character. I think is good. it's that Hawk himself and the way Willis plays it. He never takes it seriously. Yeah. He's always so concerned with being like off the cuff, charming, humorous, cracking jokes that he's never serious about what is supposed to be like his craft. Yeah. And he's serious about at times, like not wanting to do it anymore. But it's like, well, once he commits to it, you feel like you should see him, like a side of him of like, oh, okay. That seems like how the world's greatest cat burglar would behave but instead he's like i don't know he's just off having a little fun little romp with his buddy yeah which which brings me to uh, i actually which also danny aiello seems at times like he's actually the one with all the skills of planning these things but, but then sometimes they, it's they keep joking that he's, like, he's too fat and old to actually pull off the robberies <laughs> like that they hit that one over the head quite a bit and yeah. i think it's important to point out that Danny Aiello plays Tommy Five Tone, which, like, that's his name. Like, there's no last name. His name's Tommy Five Tone. And it's just, I, 
Jesus Christ, this movie is fucking stupid. Sorry. <laughs> it, it's just, but it, they say you know what's funny is you and I were talking about this uh before, but a lot of the, there's a lot of really talented people when you kind of go through the cast. You've got Danny Aiello, who's good. You've got Bruce Willis, yeah. uh, who's kind of again on, on a, a, a crazy trajectory. You've got James Coburn, you've got Andy McDowell, you've got Caruso. Um, you know, you, you kind of go through the cast and they've got a pretty talented cast, but it just feels like everybody here is just kind of wasted because this movie doesn't make sense. And I think that's another thing I want to talk about was I don't actually understand what the hell the plot is. The, the entire movie is motivated by these two characters called the Mayflowers, which are these sort of, you can kind of call them like Bezos proxies for, for 1991 <laughs> with these billionaires that run this, this empire called like, I think it's just called Mayflower and their entire premise and why they recruit Hawk to steal it for him is to break into the Vatican so they can finish building this metallurgy machine or alchemy based machine where they can turn lead into gold. And their, their entire plan is to flood the world market with gold <laughs> and create chaos. And I, but I was just like, well, we're not on the gold standard anymore in 1991 and, <laughs> and it's like what good is that going to do like what are you and i couldn't to... tell if their motivation was there was like a step they were leaving out where they <laughs> had a plan for how they would benefit them like what they would then be able to do to benefit, or if they just wanted the chaos because they were like bored billionaires and just didn't give a fuck anymore and just like oh that'd be funny if the whole world falls apart that's what Let's I could do. That. I, I think I almost need to go back and watch it again because I'm like, I just, it just, I was like, okay, I, I don't, I never, I never understood what, what is their intent, and so, well, and I of, think it presents them as such insane characters. But you're just like, like, why not? That's what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah it's like, yeah, um, well, and also, but you're leaving out the, uh, and it, that's it's the movie where it's easy to do that because there's so much fucking stuff going on. Um, that this was an alchemy machine invented by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, yes, who, who, as we find out in a course of 10 minutes, was doing every single major thing and he, he did in his career at the same time. Which is yeah. <laughs> he was in the middle of painting the Mona Lisa while inventing this alchemy machine. While also inventing a hang glider that he puts one of his, his employees on and just shoves him off the side of a castle. <laughs> I was like, that guy died. He killed. Him. <laughs> That's Da Vinci watching him murder uh, one of his employees. So, um, I mean, the, the, it could not be, it could not be more on the nose than if uh, did Da Vinci did the Sistine Chapel. I feel embarrassed. I'm actually having to ask that. Uh, no, I believe that's Michelangelo. Yep, you're right. I never mind. All right, I'm just going because I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> so you really, I bet you're really thinking about uh, actually editing this podcast. <laughs> No, I just, uh, I uh, just beyond the Ninja Turtles. I think when it gets to Italian artists uh, during the <laughs> Renaissance, I get very, very mixed up on who did You're a Ninja Turtle. You did the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, <laughs> Donatello made the first computer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, that, that I will say the one there, there are some fun touches to this, and I think one of the ones I liked was at the beginning. They should they kind of make a joke that. Mona Lisa has these terrible teeth and then uh, they cut, they cut, well, I can't remember how many years into the future they go, but they, it's when Hawks getting out of jail, the guy running the, the gate has the same teeth. And so I think there's this sort of implied joke that that guy's, you know, this long lost descendant of Mona Lisa who, who's been immortalized in this, this painting hit like her descendants are basically just the guy who opens the, the, 
the jail doors at Rikers or something like that. So I, I, like, I completely missed that, but but there's, it, there's some fun. It'd be touches. in keeping with this movie to have thought that through in such then, detail. Yeah, there's like the, but the whole plot itself doesn't actually. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, but that but yeah, so I, the, the movie the movie sort of has this reputation and I, I think it, we kind of we've already touched on it a little bit but it was it came together in 1991 when when willis is and i think willis is probably the driving force for better or worse for why this movie is the way it is i, I think certainly the script has probably got some is, is is got some problems to it but I, I this comes after let's see willis has already been in die hard one um it's probably when he around the time he also was filming Die Hard Two or or Die Hard Two had just come out. He done uh, uh, what to call the show? Civil Shepherd. Moonlighting. Moonlighting. Sorry, uh, he'd been on a couple episodes of Miami Vice. Um, so Willis had had his, this this really big trajectory. He's kind of starting to build up and kind of becoming an action star. And I think he kind of made. What? And for comedy, don't forget, uh, I, they're not my favorites, but I haven't seen them in years. But the oh, Look Who's God. Talking movies, the, those are massive hits. Yeah, that tells you how bad movie taste was in 1991. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he's building this 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 trajectory that's pretty crazy. And I think he, he looked at the time, was looking at the fact that he distinguished himself from like an Arnold or a Stallone by, by being kind of the guy who's got humor and he's more of a yeah. relatable person. Uh, you can feel a lot of that getting rolled into into Hudson Hawk. And I think that it feels like Willis in his head. And I, I get it at the time. I get it. He he's like, that's what sells. That's what's working. Like that's what's kind of pushing me forward. And so he's like, I'm gonna triple down on it. This movie. I'm just yeah, go you can everything. Well, so D'Souza tells a story on the I was there two podcast uh, where he's oh, talking yeah, to one of one. the producers on the movie on um, Hudson Hawk, and he's saying, oh, like. I just heard producer on Bonfire of the Vanities that the dailies <laughs> came back and they love what Willis is doing so much. They're going to expand his role. And, and, and D'Souza, I guess, said, it's like, oh, I told him, well, they just fucked up their movie and they <laughs> fucked up our movie because this is all going to go to Willis's head yep. of like, whatever I'm doing is gold, baby. I got to, like, we need more of that. They're right. They're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I, I would be curious to see what the truncated version of this was. Um, and I think that that I saw the. I think it may have been the same interview. Um, maybe it was a different one, but it was with D'Souza. And one of his points was, you know, the movie just doesn't take anything seriously, so it's hard for the audience to to really um, take I, anything seriously. And it's I, fair. That's it's right? it's criticism. I was thinking about that this morning before uh, before we started talking. And part of the, there there are no stakes in the movie for Hawk. No, because he's the best, but you never see anything happen to him. Like, it's never, I don't know. Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. It's a little bit like Danny Aiello, they're worried, he's worried about, but like, then Danny Aiello is like kind of in on it a little bit. Or like, his motivation is just so unclear. And he's just supposed to be this like witty, charming, humorous presence passing through all these crazy scenes. Um, and there's just, just not really enough there to the, to win you over for the audience no and and that was one of my notes i had was they they set up so he at the beginning obviously he's getting out of jail after 10 years and they have this really big opportunity they don't do anything with it they set it up that oh he was set up in in, in a theft and i think he was he was robbing a um i can't remember. it was like a uh <laughs> it was like a uh uh 
base or something like that. But he's set up. It, basically, it's revealed that he was set up and, and, and goes to jail because somebody else sort of ran him out. Well, then probably 45 minutes into the movie, they introduce um, uh, James Coburn's character, Kaplan. And then he re- immediately reveals that he's the guy who set up Hudson Hawk. And they never come back to it. And it's like, oh, I think that could have just been an entire like, yeah. <laughs> plot point they could have paid off of like, a okay, he's out for revenge or there's stakes because he's got to pay back the guy who who messed up his life. But they never pay it off. It's just, it's just, that's what's so strange about this movie is it has these off ramps it could have taken to make it better. And they just, they, it's like every time they got to one of those interchanges, they're like, nope, we're just going to keep going. What we got, we're not <laughs> yeah. going to take, we're not going to take and this that, smart decision. And that, uh, for one, the Kaplan, I think it's George Kaplan is Gilmore. Yeah. I think that's a North by Northwest reference. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I think, but, yeah, yeah that, which makes sense. But you're but, exactly but this, right. This movie, this movie did not earn a, 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 uh, what do you call it? A, a Hitchcock <laughs> no, reference. Like it doesn't yeah, yeah. It. Uh, But uh, I, I completely agree. Part of the issue with watching it, you can never, you, you never feel like you have your feet under you. Yeah, it just keeps taking left turn, left turn, left turn, and you're like, until you get like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> I and think it just never finds its own. It just keeps adding more and adding more and adding more, and it's like. Okay, he got out of jail. He wanted to run this bar, but now he can't because of the mob. It's like, okay, now Frank Stallone's here acting in a whole nother new movie. So I guess that's the tone <laughs> of this movie. It's like, nope, a character just got their throat slit. So that's something different. And it's like, and now, now this is a movie where the team helping James Coburn are named after candy bars. I kind of like, like that. Um, I kind of like and, that part. And it's like, I don't have a problem with that touch. It's just what, like, why you're just and you're just it's just it's just piling on more and more and more and never seeing that development through to pay it off it's just like setup after setup after setup yeah the cat it almost feels like the cast is too big like there's just too much going on like this movie should have been an hour longer if they're going to try and pull all these characters <laughs> oh, in God. not that it should have been. i'm not saying it should have but they, they've got some because you have you spend the first 30 minutes with danny aiello and bruce willis and then you introduce all of the Frank Stallone stuff, yeah, for like fifteen minutes, and then that that's just vague, evaporates. But like, yeah, and then you introduce all of the CIA agents through through Kaplan's team, which is a, it's like what Butterfinger, Snickers, um, <laughs> Kit Kat, Kit Kat, Almond and, Joy, and Almond Joy, and then I can't remember who the guy. Uh, there's two twins. I can't I can't remember who the twin what the twins were, but uh, and then you introduce the Vatican stuff. And then you introduce the Mayflowers and they're just like, so there's like technically like two or three sets of villains in this. And it's just like, yeah, on the Mayflowers drive the whole thing, but it's just, it's just, well, and they keep, piling, yeah, they keep piling them on. And, and, and it, I, I do, I will say, I do like the, the, where the, where the slapstick stuff does work is the, the CIA team being named after candy bars. I think that's a fun touch. Um, they do have some weird lines throughout, like at one point <laughs> where um, Andy McDowell's character, uh, Anna, is on a date with Hudson Hawk. And the guy who plays Butterfinger, who I think he was Lattimore in the program. And then I think he he also <laughs> played he also played Chip Shrek and Batman Returns. So, um, which are, but he goes, you want me to go rape him? And, <laughs> yeah. and it's not clear yeah. if he's talking about Hawk. <laughs> If he's talking about Anna, if he's talking about both of them, but you're just like, why would you say like, why would a character say that in a movie? Like, why, why? Right, and that's the tonal stuff of 
oh, that's like a cute little touch. They're all candy bars. <laughs> and yeah, they do that. You're like, what? Yeah. I feel so bad for Andy McDowell in this movie. You can just see her struggling to find, like, she's like the audience surrogate of, like, I cannot find my footing for what this is supposed to be. Is it a 40s screwball comedy? Is it a spy, like, heist movie? Is it, and, and, and she's game. She's given it her all to match whatever crazy tone the movie is. Uh, but it's like, oh, God, you're so, like, you deserve so much better than... <laughs> Her, her character might be a good microcosm for what the entire movie is because she's probably the most, and you and I were talking about before, but she's probably the most underdeveloped in terms of like one of the primary characters because she starts the movie as a very, written as a sort of very intelligent, capable, independent woman. And she presents herself at the auction that way when her and Hawk have the meet cute at a silent auction. Or not silent auction, excuse me, but an you auction. You mean the meet cute where they sit, sit down next, next to, to each, each other? other. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, uh, um, they they set her up as being kind of aloof with with Hawk, but then like halfway through the movie, it's like she's just smitten with him for no yeah, good reason. She turns and, into the world's horniest nun. Yeah, and, and almost kind of dumps her. Like at the end of it, like she's making dolphin noises. And it's almost yeah, like they, t- they take was... her from having a lot of a lot of uh, agency and just dumb her down as the it's like it's like her IQ is just like steadily declining across the back half of the movie for no reason. And I. I she feel, <laughs> feels like they just didn't know what to do with her by by the time they were trying to rewrite yeah. the script at the end. And part of why I think she starts to feel dumber and dumber is like, why are you falling for this guy? Like, we've, that's true. Like, <laughs> I as the audience, like, like, I love Bruce Willis. I'm a huge, always have been a huge Bruce Willis fan. Um, that was like my gateway to a whole bunch of random movies. Like, like I made my mom take me to go see 12 monkeys, um, <laughs> which I don't think was what she was expecting to, to see. But that was like my first introduction to like Terry Gilliam. Um, and so, and just, I was a huge diehard fan. And so, um, like, especially seeing this movie as like a teenager, I'm already on board with like loving this guy. And even I have never been able to find an entry point into really liking like the Hawk character. Um, when you watch this movie even he's pretty two-dimensional as the primary character though that's the kind of the thing is like nothing seems to phase him he's very sort of lackadaisical about how the movie goes you know his world's pretty much closing in and collapsing on him for most of the movie like he's out of he's out of jail 10 minutes before he's pretty much thrown back into crime and just nothing seems to like unsettle him like he watches a guy's throat get slit doesn't seem to phase him too much he he uh he watches his friend blow up in a, in a limo that rolls off of a cliff, which we'll touch on that later. Doesn't seem to phase him that much. He just seems kind of pissed. And I think it's just, I mentioned this to you earlier, but you know, tonally this thing is so far out of whack and all over the place that it doesn't work. And I think that's partly Willis is doing. And I would argue that like, you know, five, I think it's five years on maybe six years on when they make the fifth element, tonally that's kind of a movie like this, where it's got a lot of action, a lot of humor but I think it's somebody else steering that vision and they know how to use Willis correctly. And yeah, I think that's is. why that movie works. And here it's like, you're kind of letting Willis tell you what he thinks works versus somebody else probably knowing how to use him correctly. And I think, I think that is why, like when I looked at fifth element, it's got the same tone. It's got the sound of kind of the same crazy shifts between humor and, and action, but it works and it works really well. And I think then when you try it here with, with it coming out of Willis's head, sort of free form, it's, it's never, never, never comes together. 
Yeah, so then like the fifth element that's Luc Besant, so obviously an accomplished director who's very much known for having his own vision of things. But what they do in that is they ground the Willis character, and it's what they delve into what makes Bruce Willis special. So in that he's a taxi driver, but he also is like former like special forces. And like that's what Bruce Willis is great at. You believe him as like a taxi driver struggling and trying to get his life together, but you also believe he's a former special forces badass. Yeah. And this never really find never really finds that for him of I don't really believe he's the world's greatest cat burglar. <laughs> And I don't really ever see his everyman side in this. And so I just, yeah, I, the character just doesn't ever. Play. And you have a actor who's very capable at doing that. And if you could have had maybe an opening scene where he gets caught, where you get to see his him, his life, something of this character other than like they're trying to make him like the smartest guy in the room all the time. 10 steps ahead of everybody, but he's 10 steps behind them in terms of the plot. But then when it comes to like robbing the Vatican, he like can just do it on a whim. And I, I, yeah. I think, I think that's a, that's a good point. I was actually just thinking about it. Right. So the, the opening scene, he's supposed to steal um, the statue with Dean Aiello. It's like the day he gets out of jail and they have this, I think it's, it's in 1991, it's cutesy and fun thing where they time their robberies based on singing like a uh, kind of classic, uh, classic songs. Right. And, and so, but the problem you have is, and the more I th- thought about the more this makes sense, there's no stakes there because they're juxtaposing it to all these sort of dumb, fat and competent guards. And so it's like, it kind of makes you feel like, well, I could do that. Like I could probably do a better yeah, job. Yeah. Like I could break into this place and I could steal this shit. So it's like, what what credibility does that lend to to Willis's character for having any kind of intelligence and you know ability in the movie? And I think so. That's the Vatican's the same thing. There's a scene later where he robs the Vatican, and it's he does it with like olive oil, which is that's cliche, uh, and uh, <laughs> um, like a fishing line. And then and and but but his whole premise there was on getting alerting guards that he's there. So you're just like. Ooh. It's I don't know I it just doesn't it doesn't work, and that's where I kind of get start to question of is the problem it could the problem be the studio got nervous and pulled back on some things because with Willis and Aiello doing the singing stuff it, it just gave me a vibe of kind of the old like Bob Hope Bing Crosby like road to such and such a place where they were very comedic um, borderline not quite musicals, but borderline musicals and going for that much more loose comedic tone of establishing. This is not our world. This is this world. And these characters can act this way and no one's going to call them on it. It's quite it, um, closer to like a Marx brothers movie or yeah, but to, the, to, your, to your point, the movie like, gets scared to, yeah. to, allow it to be that world and tries to ground it still in the real world. And I don't know if that's the studio getting nervous of bringing D'Souza back in of like, no, you got to make this a Bruce Willis action comedy. Like you got to make this 48 <laughs> hours or die hard. Or like, we like, we're really scared about all of this. Like, well, singing and, <laughs> but to your point though, that, that humor is out of date. I think, I actually think that's part of where Willis 
and IO do have good chemistry is those parts are fun. Yeah, they're they're solid. Those, but, I buy them together as and they but they lean into back it. and forth a bit like but Th- that's the whole tone of the movie though yeah. too for the most part. And that, that's kind of the problem is you're having these very serious moments where you're trying to set stakes but then you're also trying to inject humor at the same time and I think um it just they never like you said you've said it you already said it before and I'm I'm being redundant. They they never mm-hmm. set the stakes so that when they that those humor those humorous moments probably don't pay off as well as they could if there were stakes around it where you feel like there's some gravity to to what's happening and yeah which i guess that's the problem of a comedy you can get away with not quite having like the big stakes yeah. of as as long as it's funny <laughs> um and this movie is not very funny the jokes mostly don't work <laughs> but i also think that's cuz tonally it's varying you all around where it's it's difficult to find your footing, so you're just not ready to laugh. Yeah, no jokes that may work in a different context. I agree, I agree. Uh, well, so it's interesting to me about this movie. You know, we as we mentioned, we want to talk more about probably what went wrong. Obviously, not that we haven't already talked about what's <laughs> wrong this movie, but you know, financially, what's interesting to me is the budget. I found something from 1991 that said the budget was 51 million. And then I heard it swell up to 70 million and then back down to 65, 51 to 65 million seems to be kind of the consensus of what we were looking at for the range. And I think you found like domestically, it only made 12 or 17 million and then 80 million um, internationally, which, so it wasn't like a full financial flop, right? Like it made at least its budget back, which is, which is interesting. Um, But then this has been always, I've always had this impression that it's a, this this huge failure um uh, and, cr- critically it was but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. well i was gonna say for the budget they also get into things in 91 since it was such a flop um domestically i'm not sure what the studio would have done with it internationally if they're selling the rights cheap to someone else internationally and maybe not seeing the full return on that box office yeah that's true um that's true and that and so that it's a little hard to to quite judge um well, that would have been, but I think that, and that's the studios back then really cared domestically. Um, and that's why they were kind of judged as an executive, as I so. I mean, I think it's pretty firmly in the, in the, in the flop category. It, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny. You, you mentioned that, you know, at the top, but, uh, that they saw the dailies for, for, uh, bonfire of the vanities and they're like great let's double down <laughs> let's let's get skipping more juice and what's funny is on the dailies that might have sounded like a good idea but when that movie came out that was a flop and that was also a big deal for willis and obviously for brian de palma to have this this big critical failure too and so it's, it's funny that this the fallacy of they follow the dailies for this other movie that's also going to be a flop that nobody knows about yet and then that steers yeah. this movie pro- probably into more dangerous territory than, than what they were going to do initially. So I'd be curious to know to your, to what we talked about earlier, I'd be really interested to see what were the choices pre that call that they were going to make uh, and how they're going to, how this movie going to come together. It's like, I, I bet you don't have, I bet you don't have as complicated or convoluted a villain. And one of the things I saw from D'Souza was he talked about that, that, the villains, the Mayflowers were actually a, a composite that were from different scripts. And like, I think it was from his screenplay. It was from, then it was from this guy who actually wrote the the script and then Willis. And it sounds like they weren't supposed to be a couple, but the Mayflowers were supposed to be a single person. 
Yes. And then yeah, I Willis that. wanted it. I think I can't. Maybe it wasn't Willis. But somebody wanted to also introduce the villain as a, as a woman, and so the compromise was, well, why don't you just make it a couple? And so that was how they you end up with the Mayflowers as these kind of maniacal, batshit crazy villains <laughs> in the movie. And so it's, man, it's like it's just crazy. It's like that one phone call may have completely speared this movie into just like <laughs> one star territory. It's cra- it's crazy to think about that. That that sort of um, sliding doors effect of, of like what if somebody had not done that? Oh, definitely. And so talking about the Mayflowers, I just was. Um, I, I can't say I like the characters in the movie, <laughs> but I will say if it's Richard Grant and Sandra Bernhardt. I'll give them credit; they are giving it their all. They oh, are. Oh yeah, they're at eleven all the time. A bunkers energy. That is, I mean, it's definitely what they're being asked to do. They are <laughs> they are delivering what was requested. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I mean, Sandra Bernhardt's intro is, uh, I can't remember what her first name is, Miss, Mrs. Mayflower. Uh, um, she's singing, is it CNC Music Factory? And she's laying across yep. a boardroom <laughs> table just singing at full volume. And then there's, they deliver their speech about like why they're insane and like how they're going to do all this crazy shit. And there's just a boardroom of people. Why is like, that was the weirdest thing. It was like, you're watching a boardroom full of people just like stare at these two maniacs just like dance on the <laughs> table and have their dog sniff bruce willis's crotch and like yeah it's just, it's, it's, like oh it's just nuts it's fucking nuts and and then somebody watched that and they're like yeah this is good like this makes sense like let's go with this we're on the right track <laughs> and I, I and i wonder too if maybe they just got too far into it before they realized like how far off the rails this thing had gone and but it was like yeah, it's hard. Is we we gotta shut everything down and rethink it, or were you just riding this out and hoping yeah. for the best? And that that there was some stuff too. I, I'd read why maybe why the the budget swell on this is probably not entirely due to just you know they they shot it they shot a lot of it in Italy. They also tried to shoot a lot of it in Hungary to save money, but apparently, I think Hungary at the time um, was probably not not as far along as the rest of Europe at that point. I think they had some problems with labor. They had some problems with sourcing materials for building sets. They built some very expensive sets uh, there and it took a lot longer than they expected. So it sounds like that was that was part of kind of what drove drove the movie over budget and probably what caused some delays. But I, I saw an interview with Richard E. Grant a couple of years ago where he he talked about how they could kind of feel like on set. They were like, I think when they were shooting in Italy, it's like, this isn't, going well like this isn't gonna be a good movie so it's it's interesting um but i'll say a lot of times for comedies you'll hear that from actors in those types of roles because comedy is so timing based and so and if you've set a tone where those performances can work i could see it like so you hear a lot of times being like man i thought this was going to be a disaster but like yeah it turned out great uh, because someone has the comedic vision about there, and it seems like for this, the vision was lost, <laughs> and they're just not even doing anyone's vision anymore. They're just trying to finish this movie. I, I th- and I, well, and I think unfortunately, I think that's the vision is Bruce Willis's own persona. Um, it, it, everything you put it in your notes, you know, it feels like everything is in service of a reaction shot for him or giving him a, a place to insert quips to, to be funny. And so I mean, like, I, like, I like Bruce Willis too, a lot. And I, the diehard movies were, were, were hugely important in terms of 
kind of my introduction to movies, but it feels like that's the, those are the points where you can see very much that he had probably too much authority on this before maybe D'Souza was was brought in by the studio to to rein it rein him back in and put it put it back on track. Um, and I, I, but that that's the only consistency to me in, in the whole movie is is his his ego kind of being put up on on the big screen um, for better or worse, mostly for worse. Yeah. So. I, I don't know if you've seen these online before. If you have people who haven't seen the movie, you haven't seen it in a while. Don't. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know um, how many times you saw it. I often see people criticize like The Office for, and it's like an easy criticism, for how often something would happen and it's like a white pan over to um, John Krasinski, Jim, doing like a, a <laughs> funny face. Like, mugging face or something. And that's very much what this movie is doing with like Willis when and i'm wondering if that's just like an editing room choice of like these characters are just given bonkers performances and crazy shit is happening i guess we'll just cut to willis's reaction and it just does that like 200 times of uh befuddled or slightly amused or slightly annoyed or like a willis looking like oh i know what i I have a plan for this kind of look on his face of and it's just like it's just over and over and over. But the character has not become charming enough yet for you. Like you're not you're not invested in him enough to to warrant those reaction shots. Well, in, in theory, he's supposed to be serving as the audience's proxy in those moments. But then his reaction is almost as crazy by not responding <laughs> to what's right. really going on. Yeah. The so you're like, okay, yeah, it's so crazy. This. Like his non-reaction or like kind of non-plus reaction is like. No, you're not my surrogate anymore because no sane person is just like just rolling with all this shit. Well, it's funny to me is just again uh, the, the the levels of talent that were were in the movie. Like you have a Michael Kamen score, which to me actually is I I forgot by the midpoint of the movie I forgot he actually did the score because it seems so out of out of tune. Sounds like a silly thing to say, but it sounds so out of out of line with his other scores that he did in the 1980s that were so big and then you've got willis I mean, you've got joel silver the director was pretty was pretty new but it just feels like this 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 had a lot of things that could have made it successful if they had just had it to your point had a a singular vision um carrying it through and i it, it's a shame it, it didn't work i think it almost derailed bruce as i recall it almost derailed bruce willis's career because you kind of look at what he does after this, his, his trajectory sort of veers very quickly back into uh, the action territory. I think he did like not long after this, I think he does with striking distance. He does, he did Die Hard one the same year. Um, he does uh, Die Hard three kind of the mid nineties. And it seems like after, after he kind of gets his, gets taught a lesson here, this sort of course corrects his career for the, you know, forever um, well it, it probably helps him a lot i think 91 he also has the last boy scout come yeah, out i forgot that was that early yeah you're right i watched that the other end actually so that probably stops it that probably saves um but again from because that was shane black it's a shane black written script uh, and i think you have you have a, a much better vision and yeah anyway go ahead sorry yeah i just think like, he at least has something that's viewed as probably successful of like all right we can still throw this guy in some action movies yeah, and he does. 
I don't I don't know how much I, I like the movie. I thought it, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it, but he does Death Becomes Her the next year, which is kind of a full blown comedy. Yeah, and that's a similar, I guess, yeah. tone to what he's maybe trying more so than the last Boy Scout striking distance kind of stuff. And then uh, also has Pulp Fiction in there, which is yeah, which is that's, uh, gives that's a lot huge. of credibility. Yeah, to everyone involved in that. That's such a hot movie. I feel like, well, when you look at the trajectory from Pulp Fiction, I'm going off topic here a little bit, but what's interesting is that probably, I think that was credited a lot for resetting Travolta's career. Um, he, I mean, he was also doing, he was also in Look Who's Talking, you know, like Willis is, Willis is just a voice in it, but um, that resets uh, Travolta's career. It probably helped reset a little bit of credibility for Willis too, because he's got a pretty big role in that. And then it also kind of helps, not that he needed it maybe, but that was probably the the pretty big launch pad for Samuel L. Jackson too. So, you know, Pulp Fiction's a huge reset probably in the mid nineties for a lot of people, but yeah, I mean, you don't see a lot of crazy out of um, what's the word. He doesn't step too far out of his lane after, after um, uh, doing uh, uh, Hudson Hawk. Like, and, and I don't think he gets the, the level of authority again that he was given for this movie. Yeah, because everything he's might be the star, but it's he's the star in someone else's movie. vision. Yeah, it's somebody else's vision. Basically, to, to, that which is and someone is looking at him and saying, "I can harness that talent <laughs> for what I'm for what I'm wanting to do here." Um, and I and he may I don't know how interested he was after this of um, of doing that, and you know he also got to go. I mean, he worked obviously with. Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. Um, and then I talk about dealing with Terry Gilliam, Luke Besson, uh has his run with a couple movies with um, Shyamalan in that. Yeah. Uh, that he may have been pretty happy to, and maybe working with those people as opposed to um, some of the more action movie level directors or just be like, okay, I'll, I'll follow this person's vision uh, because they're I see their talents I respect them if I'm working with them I can get I can get behind that um, and then yeah. kind of goes into just paycheck roles for a while or yeah and I, at, at a time in the early 2000s that's where that's where things kind of change like I think really change probably for the worst for him because he, he kind of ends the 90s I'll say ends the 90s but um, he does Armageddon I think in 98 and then you don't let me see. What does he do after that? And then he does uh, the Six Sense is next year. And then Unbreakable. So yeah, he's got. So he's got he's got some a couple of big movies, but then he kind of starts to fade pretty bad after that. the the whole The whole nine yards, the whole ten yards movies, those are terrible. Uh, and then he just kind of, like you said, he kind of does a bunch of almost straight to video action movies. Really, for the last like fifteen years, it's just yeah. It's, well, tough. you can kind of see he's making some choices where. Like he's in something like um like he's is in the Sin City movie or he's in like Fast Food Nation where Sin City might, was good. I liked him in Sin City. Um yeah, he might just be picking out things that look more interesting. Um and then is taking some and then is making like hostage, because that, that's like his big starring movie. But then it's like, oh, I'll do like a smaller project too. So it seems like he's kind of jumping around to he's Bruce Willis now. He's it's like he's going to be a pretty big star for the rest of his life because he had like a 15 year run where he's a big movie star. And like, that is not going to go away at this point. So you're going to, cause I remember he's in those, um, 
red movies. I remember those being a fairly are, big. Okay, those are fun. Yeah. But then he does uh, Moonrise Kingdom with like Wes Anderson as I got smaller. That felt like they were trying to fit a uh, a square peg in a round hole, though. It was like it almost felt like you could see he could watch him trying to kind of. I don't know. It, it, he he's not quirky enough to really be in a Wes Anderson movie. I, not that he was bad in it, but I just it, I'm not surprised we didn't see him in more Wes Anderson movies after that. If that makes sense. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and looking was, but... looking at his career, there's I wish he did more of this because I'm looking at like uh, I forgot he was the the sort of main bad bad guy in Planet Terror. Um, he has a really good role in um, uh, the Siege as sort of a secondary character who kind of ends up playing this. this this military uh uh i think it's a he's a general that that sort of basically goes against the constitution torturing people but he's got kind of a secondary role in those i wish he did more of that stuff where he's not the lead but he's a really good either villain or sort of secondary character that you don't get him you don't get him on screen the whole movie but you get flashes of him and i think that works really well for him and i I wish i wish we got more of that out of him yeah, and I don't know some of the health issues you've learned about with him if you yeah. lost out on some of that stuff. Uh, but but I would say anything I look at where he it's a comedic movie, he's he's the heavy. He's front and center, yeah. <laughs> or like but he's the the intimidating guy. He's the he's not the comedic lead in this, like he is in Hudson Hawk, where yeah, I like you could put like Eddie Murphy in this role. Uh, in that that totally works for what they're asking this character to do going forward comedically. He's going to be the intimidating guy who the comedy actor is reacting to much more. So, yeah, like to your point, if you put Eddie Murphy in this, I think people are going to go into it with a very different expectation right off the bat of what it's going to be. And I well, think and Eddie Murphy could match the energy that yeah. <laughs> this movie, like, he is such a force of nature more so than like a, a Bruce Willis. Who's a little more laid back, laconic presence. Eddie Murphy could still as crazy as this movie is like full bore. Eddie Murphy could still take this movie over and make it an Eddie Murphy movie. Because I think, well, I think because his reactions would be reacting to what he's actually seeing, which is what your yeah. reaction should be is like, this is crazy. I think that's actually why, well, I'm going way off on a tangent. I think this is why Beverly Hills Cop works so well as people went into it thinking, okay, it's an Eddie Murphy movie. It's going to be a comedy. But then it's a pretty good action movie wrapped around it yeah, too. And I, with I think the... with, with, with his humor. And so I think that's, uh, you know, I'm probably downplaying a little bit, but that's probably why a lot, a lot of why that movie works is you've got Eddie Murphy, but Eddie Murphy kind of knew in them, even in that, where to play it up and play it down in terms of how, he, how serious he was going to be. Now, Willis just feels like, everything he wants to do here is, is funny. It's almost like, again, to me, it's just the whole movie is predicated on him messaging. I'm a funny guy. Yeah, look, how, look how smart I am. It's, uh, it feels like it's Willis trying to prove that like, Willis is a good comedic actor. He's been in good comedies, but this is him stretching past that, what he's capable of. This requires someone who is at the Eddie Murphy level peak of their powers to pull off. Yeah, and and it's weird. I think Eddie Murphy managed to cash that chip in at the right time. And I think Willis had the opportunity and probably squandered it a little bit, to be honest with you. I mean, he still has an incredible career after this, but man, it's just... This movie is just <laughs> fucking something else. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually wanted to talk about a little bit the legacy of this movie. A bit. We were kind of hitting on that with Willis and like kind of what that impacted his career, but more the critical legacy of this movie. So you mentioned like, how did this get made? Did it? It's sem- semi-infamous of a movie. Um, and my first introduction was like Comedy Central on cable, probably like the late 90s. And what was always funny to me is now having like actually watched it a few times from start to finish. I would always catch it on Comedy Central and everything I remember was every scene in my memory of the movie I'd assume was in the last 20 minutes of the movie because I'd watch it and be like, oh, well, I must be at the end of the movie. And that's why I don't know what's going on. And it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and it's like, nope, this is this is the opening. This is the beginning. <laughs> uh, um, but anyway, so but uh, critically online, it's, it's somewhat infamous, especially. But uh, there's it's in my research, I stumbled across this um article from the new yorker so online you see a lot of like stuff that's like clickbait that'll be like oh like why hudson hawk is actually a better movie than die hard or like shit like that that just makes you want to like angrily click on it and they get that Bruce willis birthed kittens by himself yeah uh well but this new yorker article um so it's in like the fucking new yorker as like the most unclickbaity like publication i think you can think of and the film critic in it, um, and I don't want to take anyone to task too much, but I was like, <laughs> I was like, you and I may may have want something different out of movies because in it he argues and he fully admits like the movie's terrible. Uh, some of the comedy probably landed a little bit better for him, but I was like, well, if you're a film critic from a real more old school and love the 40 like kind of chaplain through the 40 screwball comedies i was like i could see maybe appreciating some of this humor a little bit more uh but in the in the piece he's arguing that he would rather watch this again than watch die hard or terminator 2 were the two specific movies he called out as this being like mindless action movies and i was like man that's a hell of a take like I get you're not saying it's better, but I don't know. I, I have a lot of questions for you as a critic. If you're saying you'd rather watch this than Die Hard or Terminator 2, because just those are so significantly better of movies, like especially Die well, Hard. Terminator, Terminator 2, if same you're not, year, same if summer. You're, yeah. If you're not into sci-fi and that kind of bounces off you, I, okay, maybe. you just rather watch a bad comedy than a sci-fi, but like, I don't know, like Die Hard's got some comedy, got some action. It's like, I, I'm not sure what you're looking for. If you're really, I don't, I have a hard time believing that you honestly believe that. Well, I mean, uh, but I, I just kind of how yeah, you're right. These I, takes come like full circle on it. We're like, man, you can go find a take of like <laughs> just about anything and how it becomes like infamous to where, and I think there's like an appreciation out there now for how crazy this is. Um, that it has its fans, and I wonder how many are ironic, and I wonder how many um, are like, I acknowledge this is bad, but I kind of earnestly like what this is trying to do and can get on board with it. Yeah, you, you hit on it earlier, and it's a really valid point that the studio system, I think, and I, I'm saying this as somebody who's not, I'm looking at it very much from the periphery, but um, it's so locked down now. You would, you would just never get this. Like this would have been reined in way before 
you got to like the you know the set problems they were having with Willis's ego way before you you build all these crazy big sets in a in a country that can't you know financially or physically support what you're doing. And I think that's what's interesting about it. And I do I do agree that I, I have an affinity for movies that that take big swings, um, knowing that's not going to always land. I mean, look, one of my favorite movies uh, is Halloween three, um, and I, I know that doesn't make any sense, but I, I like it because. Um, it takes a really big swing. It knew what it needed to get away from, and it took a big swing to try and do it. It doesn't land in a lot of ways, but at least it's trying something. Hudson Hawk is trying something. I don't mind sitting through it. It's tough if you're trying to watch it critically. If I want to watch something that's like I can just put on in the background and it's a little bit mindless, this is a great movie to just waste time, kind of. Like I'm doing other stuff, but it's on in the background. And you can take like every few minutes or so, you're like, oh, what a crazy scene that was. Yeah, you, you, can, yeah. <laughs> you can check in and then kind of like munch out and not miss anything, right? And because it doesn't flow together at all, like <laughs> it doesn't change the viewing experience. No, and I, I, I think to your point, when I was a kid, I caught a lot of this on Comedy Central. And I feel like for whatever reason, I kind of caught the parts, basically like the last 45 minutes of this movie too. That's what I remember the most is when... Uh, this and I think my mom rented this from Blockbuster when I was a kid. I think I watched parts of it. The things that I remembered the most were the golf bags with rocket launchers inside of them. <laughs> it's like golf clubs, <laughs> and then the the whole hat convention joke at the end where uh, Bruce Willis kills the Mayflower's <laughs> butler because he has dual, dual swords up his sleeves, and they, he pins him to a door and slams the door, and the guy falls forward on his own knives, chops his head off, and he makes some jokes. What's the joke? He's like, I guess you'll be attending that hat convention in July. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be this joke that just sucks. Just never, yeah. never funny. But th- those are the things I kind of remember about it as a kid. But I never felt, I never really looked at it as like, awful but when i sat and tried to watch it on this viewing is like a okay critically do i need to have a, a view of this it is pretty tough to just sit down and watch and you know it's funny you mentioned t2 uh t2 came out the same summer as this and that did 500 million and that was like that was like an, a, a movie that galvanized schwarzenegger is like okay he's here like He's the biggest star on the planet. He's the biggest star in the world. Yeah. And I think I'll go back to it. Ego, Schwarzenegger was in great hands. He was in Cameron's hands. And Cameron knew what to do with him. And I think Schwarzenegger was also probably at the time, you know, obviously Arnold's got probably some ego and swagger to him at the time, but he's at least smart enough to trust the right people as to like how to use him. And I think Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger kind of knew his limits. And he he had kind of found those those boundaries to stay in, and you can just see like Willis hadn't figured that out, and and, and Schwarzenegger probably figured it out like six eight years before this. Will you're watching Willis like kind of run wild with something here and and like not know what his limits are, and that's kind of what the fallacy of this movie is, and it's it's interesting. Those those are probably two movies that are juxtaposed to each other of somebody who knows knows how to be used and 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 be put in the right vehicle, where, where somebody's still kind of learning that lesson. So, and I. I'd say a bit Schwarzenegger probably had a slower trajectory to his career where he was and people would use him in limited ways of like, all right, well, you're not going to talk much in this. <laughs> and like where Willis is probably a little faster and yeah. probably and because he came out of like moonlighting. So he's coming off a sitcom. So comedy doesn't seem crazy. 
for this guy to be doing, but then has fallen into these action movies where it's working. And he may not have even been sure of his limitations yet. No. And I, I, I say, it was like, this- oh, I, I, I want to, yeah. And I, and I, I don't disagree with taking the chance on it of if this had worked, it wouldn't have seemed out of left field that this guy made a great, um, I mean, a great action comedy because that's kind of not. No, that, that, when you say it that way, it doesn't seem crazy at all. It's just what kind of comedy? <laughs> no, I, 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 I agree. I, I, I say it not trying to criticize Willis because because for anybody to even get to a level where they had this kind of opportunity in the first place says something about what what his abilities and, and his talent is. It's just to your point, maybe that rising rising too fast and, and giving that giving given that opportunity too fast is probably hurts him a little bit because he probably didn't have enough experience under his belt to understand, you know, maybe really what worked well yeah, for, if, for what, what was his audience wanting from him. How it could go wrong. If yeah. You're, if you're yeah. And I think Arnold, I mean, you could really go back and you could argue <laughs> look, I I absolutely love the movie. You could argue Commando is just a completely this is just a huge piece of shit. I love the movie. <laughs> um, but, but Arnold made Arnold, Arnold made some movies that if you tried to make those five years later it would have just been flops. And but but in the 1980s he was sort of setting there... a trend. Yeah. And uh, uh, Willis probably didn't have that luxury because he went pretty much from TV straight into movies. And then two years later, from his biggest hit, he's making this. And so yeah, like he he probably didn't have time to kind of get his feet under him enough to to kind of rein some of this in. Yeah, so we're an hour in, <laughs> and I feel we could go on forever and ever and ever in the same vein. But, um, and like, I feel this is one you could do like a podcast every six months on and just like, oh, new stuff. But no, I, th- I think we've, uh, unless you have anything other, maybe we hit some of our categories that we, no, uh, let's do it. Let's hit it. Cause I, I really love where you're going with this one. Um, uh, so uh, put Carl Weathers in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I this movie maybe really not like Danny Aiello, and I think that's not fair of of him as the act for the actor because <laughs> he is a talented actor and he's been in, in a lot of really good stuff. I mean, I liked him in and I haven't seen Do the Right Thing, but I think he's got a pretty important yeah, role in that. Fantastic, yeah, fantastic. And yeah. Uh, I liked him in Leon a couple years after that. I think he's he's a good actor. He's just the ending of where they save his character is what drove me nuts all of a sudden after he blows up in a car and it rolls off of a cliff he's just hanging out having having coffee in a coffee shop yeah talk about unearned moments yeah like the ending that that, that's probably one of the worst parts of the movie for me but i i I think i would put like carl weathers probably in the the uh partner role because i think it it wouldn't make sense for sort of the mob angle for the rest of the movie but i think it's more you would have more fun with somebody who probably has more presence and agency and i think carl weathers might be a better spot for that i i, yeah. I just don't, i don't like the way they handle aiello and they have the kind of the weird stereotyped italian mob stuff kind of sprinkled throughout this i think if you took all that out you don't lose anything so i'd, I'd put him in as is uh <laughs> i also wouldn't name him i wouldn't name him tommy five tone either <laughs> oh, why not <laughs> <laughs> i would put him in as is probably tommy's character and, and get rid of get rid of aiello yeah, I absolutely. You sent that to me. I was like, I absolutely love that because I can picture Carl Weathers in this role, and the movie still has you know most of its flaws. But <laughs> I just love that he's gonna. I'm gonna get the Carl Weathers energy in all these scenes, and that I, I think 
he has can have a much more fun presence than Danny Aiello naturally has. And I think like if Carl Weathers is having fun doing this and he and Bruce Willis are bantering back and forth, I was like, I at least feel as the audience, like I'm going to have a little more fun. Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel bad saying it because I think Aiello and, and Willis actually have pretty good chemistry throughout the movie. Um, they're fun. It's just their chemistry is in a different movie than the rest of what's going on. Yeah. And I think that- Weathers is enough bringing a different energy than Willis, whereas Aiello and Willis are maybe too similar. Yeah. I think, I think Carl Weathers might ground that relationship a little bit better to keep it, keep the tone matched um, better than perhaps what, uh, yeah. than what Danny Aiello is doing here. Um, yeah. So yeah, I absolutely love that idea. <laughs> well, if you had to, which is going to be hard to say for this movie, but if you were going to spend 10% more on the budget, so what is that? If it, let's say it's sixty five, if you're going to spend another six and a half, seven million, where are you putting it to, to make so, this thing better? <laughs> so this is fully a podcast decision. I recognize if you're an executive at the time, this is a decision that gets you fired and you never work <laughs> in Hollywood again. So like, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm doubling down. I'm giving the six million dollars to Bruce Willis and saying, "Guess what, buddy? You're the director now. Take us where we need to go. It's all your vision." <laughs> I, yeah, you know what? I, I, my answer was going to be putting it into script and improving the tone, but I think you're right. <laughs> I, I think it goes one of two ways. I think there's only two paths you can take. I think you're, it's either your path, which is double down and maybe you get something that's so over the top that it becomes legendary, yeah. or you, you, you spend, or you have to spend that six or seven million raining it back in. But I, I would be, I'm curious to see either avenue, if that makes sense. So, like, I, I, I want to like- see it either way. I feel like what we have is them doing exactly what you're saying. They spend extra money to try to rein it back in oh, fair. Fair and get a, get a releasable movie. In my way, you may not get a releasable movie. It may just all be like, well, we're just going <laughs> to like we're just going to eat the 70 million and like we can't we can't put this out like Oh, you're you're probably right. I felt bad actually. For, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but D'Souza said he didn't get paid for the rewrites. He said they basically oh, just agreed man. they agreed to fly him and his wife to Italy and 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 put him up with you know all expenses paid, which is still like a pretty cool experience, but not if that's your profession necessarily. Yeah, to, yeah. Like that's how you're supposed to earn money. But yeah, and that's yeah, it for him. Right. He he's probably right. established enough where it's like, all right, let me keep this professional relationship. Well, it's Good. Joe Silver, right? Like it's like that's yeah. and it's one of those. If this movie and it's like then, well, now if this movie's a flop, at least I can say I came in for free to do what I could do. And yeah, not, that, that's fair. And I, and I, I, I don't, yeah. I don't lay a lot of the problems of this movie at his feet. Um, should probably made that more clear at the top. I mean, <laughs> um, but but I, I you I do think he was probably like a. I do I do think a lot of it was probably Willis's ego at the time. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I yeah, but that's I, why I like. I, I think you gotta double down, gotta, and like maybe and like Bruce Willis is not necessarily a writer, producer, director, or um, still fairly early on. So like maybe he can't quite communicate his vision that well, but he can see it, and so maybe if like he's fully in in control, like maybe you can get there. Maybe you can get to what that vision was, and who knows? Maybe. It, Maybe it works. Maybe it's crazy and off the wall, but like maybe it keeps the same tone and that at least <laughs> carries through to work. Now, yeah, 
more that's like a one percent chance it's more likely to be a complete disaster even worse than this but uh that i like i just take things like finish the big swing you took the big swing like keep on going uh but i get if you do that and you're the executive who green that that oh, you just gave first willis right like your career is done they're never like letting you do anything again yeah that i was trying to think of like who would you put over him at this time as a director to maybe if that was where you were to spend your money, who else would you pull in? But I'm like, Cameron's doing T2. And I don't think this, the style of what Willis is bringing fits with Cameron. I think Cameron's going to be the bigger personality or need to be the bigger personality in that relationship. Yeah. Well, and because the director here, I mean, kind of makes sense as a comedic. Yeah, what did he uh, do? Movie? I, uh, I forgot. I know he uh, his some... big thing early early to start was Heather's, which is a movie I love. It's a good movie, um, yeah. Which is movie. fantastic. Um, but prior to this, not a ton. He'd done this movie, um, Meet the Applegates, which I've never seen. It sounds kind of interesting, but it's like these insects from South America moved to the U.S. to try to blend in and steal nuclear secrets. I don't know. It's got an interesting cast of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty out there, but um, but then goes to Hudson Hawk. Uh, um, but then after this, does Earheads, a movie I I absolutely adore. Which is um, I I read the, somebody talking about that, either somebody talked about it or I heard it on another podcast. It is Die Hard. I I never thought of it like that. It is Die Hard because yeah. Michael Michael, yep. Michael um, Richards Richards is is in an air vent trying to escape and it but it's just the difference is the terrorists are three idiots with with water guns yeah and but then does some like another comedic things but then kind of just goes into tv for the most part but um but you could see why like that that might charge me to say it's the time. wrong director for this yeah, movie because of what he went on to do but yes i, I don't know um I don't. I. I mean, granted, I, I'm not super deep into directors from that time, but I'm like, if I think about the people I would know from an action standpoint, um, we already know Rennie Harlan was doing Die Hard two. We um, had just been coming off that. That's the year before, I think. Is that year before? Okay, year before. Yeah. Um, but then what's his name? Uh, you don't have. I don't think you could use. Uh, oh God, why can't I think of his name? The guy who did uh, Predator, um, directed Predator. McTiernan? McTiernan. I don't think McTiernan. I don't think that would have worked here. You don't. I don't think you would have used Cameron here. It's weird. You're right. Maybe, maybe you're right. I think I'm just going to shut up and agree with you. <laughs> Pay. So that would take. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's all right. So if you did that, what that would be is if you gave Willis the extra six and a half million, that would have given his total comp from what I'd read for this movie to have been somewhere of like eighteen and a half million dollars, which would have meant he would have been paid more than the U.S. gross for this movie <laughs> or domestic <laughs> gross for this movie. Yeah, you're Look, getting, I get you're it. Fired. You're 100% I'm fired. I'm fired. <laughs> um, I yeah, I agree. I'm just gonna shut up because I, I agree with you. You're you're 100 right. <laughs> it's, even though I'm 100 percent wrong. <laughs> that's what's crazy. Is this, this is so out in left field. There but are no other, there are other choices. Like, right. That's like, if that's what you do, like, you just gotta double down on it and try to make what's there works. I don't. You didn't. You just. You couldn't do like the ten percent and like goose it with like a new element or something. No, you'd have to rework the entire thing from concept through finish, or you're just going with what you got and hoping for the best. <laughs> Give me his cheaper Mexican equivalent, Senor Spielberg. 
um uh yeah no i i i think you're right i don't i don't i don't know what else to to say i'm done you're you're correct yeah so i i, I guess we need to rate this but i feel bad um because it's <laughs> definitely going to be uh fairly fairly low i want to i want to see actually what i I know, I know what you gave it. Okay, yeah, it's it's what I thought, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I think I gave it one and a half Bruce Willis reaction shots. <laughs> <laughs> I keep going. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like what's the good, what's the best metric I want. It's use. too crazy. It's like that you can go. Do you you do like you go with that like whatever the that name of that crazy little elephant that girl had that Bruce Willis uses at the Vatican for a distraction? Was it Pokey or no? It's not Pokey. Something um, something like that, yeah. Or the uh, the glowing community walkie-talkie crucifix. That was what I was going to go with. I was actually going to give it. I, I will give it two um, walkie-talkie glowing crucifixes. It's <laughs> my ranking out of five glowing crucifix walkie-talkies. I'm really leaning towards that's our podcast like official rating scale. <laughs> Everything is glowing walkie-talkie crucifixes. Scale, <laughs> scale of one to five light of Jesus's. Which one do you rank this? As? That see that's what's that's what's funny. Oh God, I'm gonna keep going. I those are the little touches i like i'm like i don't know why but i'm like that makes me laugh like i thought that was a really funny right you could see like an austin powers the energy yeah. in there somewhere that could like could work and that's why i was like oh like if someone just takes that vision all the way now i don't know who that is that could be <laughs> director d'souza or that could be willis like don't, you don't yeah. know who, those touches that are like may not be the willis part of like vision <laughs> like it may be someone else I, I, I yeah to your point i i did enjoy those, like, those little yeah. touches and like you you mentioned it too like the pope watching um mr oh Ed yeah yeah like there's there's small stuff in here that is like oh that's really funny like i like that touch but yeah like if if, if that I was the humor in this movie i think that would be okay like if that was the touches they used and that yeah. was more of the tone of the humor um and maybe that level throughout i think this is probably a better movie but now is that like D'Souza coming in or like someone else coming in and inserting that? Yeah, it's and trying uh, to salvage what's there, but that's tough. It's tough to say, and that, that's where, again, that's where I struggle too. Was was trying to pick out like the dialogue, and be like because um, okay. you have the comedic fight scene with Bruce Willis doing like Three Stooges stuff. That yeah, yeah, and and then they they the Indians, maybe. they write a uh, Da Vinci built like five hundred year old uh, hang glider <laughs> to safety or yeah. something. I don't know. Which so. is like, yeah, I get you opened the scene with that. You end this movie with that. Like, yeah, I get that. That's that's theoretically good screenwriting. <laughs> theoretically. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a script. All right. Well, here's the more important question. What are we covering next? I think we talked a little bit about it. <laughs> I think we agreed on uh, we'll save his uh, directorial debut for the yeah. final one which that's uh, speaking of star ego and, that's another movie with a lot of star ego <laughs> go ahead sorry uh, I cut you off. um and maybe maybe some studio ip hubris of yes <laughs> um i think i think uh judge dread which rob I, schneider <laughs> the rob schneider vehicle not the slide yeah. stallone vehicle the rob schneider vehicle trade uh, is, is stallone in that i i, I do not i don't remember i just remember uh rob I mean, all, all, all they did is take the character who's famous for never taking his mask off and revealing his face and immediately take his mask off and reveal his face as being slide stallone <laughs> i'm excited to talk about it it's a bad movie i'm excited to talk about it because i saw it in theaters as a kid um and yeah 
I read the comics, um, the 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 kind of original 1980s, 1970s, 1980s British comics. So I, I think that's a fun one. Um, and that's, I, you know, again, another movie where probably star ego took over a little bit and, and speared it into bad territory. Something different than what maybe yeah. Yeah, the vision had been. Yeah, I'm excited. That's when I would have rented as a kid. And I'm excited for that one because that not, I'm not sure where I fall in Hudson Hawk. I don't know if he would have. Judge Dredd is 100% a movie we would have done on a movie marathon um, as teenagers. Uh, oh, yeah. And it would have straddled the line of so we kind of want to watch we kind of want to watch Judge Dredd and make fun of it, but we also just kind of want to watch Judge Dredd because we like <laughs> action movies. Like, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about uh, um, Armand Asante's choices. <laughs> oh God, that's as, right. I forgot he's the as Dredd's brother. Um... Is, who's the uh, the woman in it? Um, Oh, uh, not Ashley Judd. It's um, Diane Lane. Diane yeah, Lane plays okay. uh, Judge <laughs> yeah. Hershey in that. Which why? Yeah. I, why I know. That. I mean, hell, of, hell of a cast. <laughs> it is a good cast, but a, a terrible movie. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. Um, look forward to talking about that next week. And considering the or continuing, I guess it's the last. It's the second to last movie in the D'Souza Palooza. Um. And I, I think you said it right, but we're gonna we're gonna end it on um, D'Souza's acting. I think it's, it might be a single acting credit uh, uh, directing or, or directing credit. credit. <laughs> uh, 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 well, he uh, might Street be in Fighter. it. I yeah, I hope. Which he is I'm in excited it. for because that movie is crazy. It's it crazy. Is... I, I I think if you ever had to have a movie that more aptly describes cocaine and and John Claude Van Damme, it's probably. Although I, I believe it'll be a little sax. I think Raul Julia was kind it's of his last movie. Well, it's his last it. movie, and yeah. like was like really pulling himself up to like finish this movie for everybody. And it's like, oh man, like. I, I mean, I'll hope. go and say it. He, he's hope he was worth it. He's probably the high water mark of that movie in terms yeah. of what he's able to deliver. Oh god, I hope he. I hope he wasn't like. Man, I'm struggling and dying, but like I gotta save this movie. I'm the only good thing in it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. It sucks because he he is yeah. good, and I like Raul Julia. Yeah, yeah, he is good. Um, and I what I remember from that is like Van Damme's like barely in it, and it was really marketed yeah. as like a Van Damme vehicle. And he and it's not. It's mostly hardly it's at all. like Ken and Ryu. I think are like actually more like, of the main characters. Yeah. <laughs> so all right, we're getting too far ahead of ourselves, but uh, all right, I enjoyed it. Uh, if you have not seen Hudson Hawk. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, if you're if you're okay with knowing you're going to burn an hour and forty five minutes, do it because you're going to see some some craziness. It's very much you get to see kind of the 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 excess of eighties. It's like an eighties movie hangover. Is probably how I would describe it. Yeah, if you if you like um, movies that fail, but in an interesting <laughs> way or crazy way or something. I guess if at any point during this podcast you said, huh, maybe I should check that out. Sure. Go for it. <laughs> if you like Bruce Willis, check it out. If you don't, all right, maybe pass on this one. So, yeah. all right, buddy. It was fun. I will. Catch uh, you yeah. Week. I love you. I love you too.